When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ho, 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 hello, and welcome back to Bar Humbug, the Christmas movies podcast that is super excited because, after all, there is only one more sleep till Christmas. Yes, today we are talking about a giant of a Christmas movie, one that I think rivals It's a Wonderful Life and Die Hard as most people's number one choice. It celebrates its 30th anniversary this year. It's just out in a new and very slightly extended version on Disney Plus and in cinemas. And it is, of course, The Muppet's Christmas Carol, the definitive felt-based version of Charles Dickens' classic Christmas story. So joining me to discuss it today are, first of all, my Muppet's Christmas Carol sweatshirt uh, that I'm wearing. But more importantly, uh, Ollie Richards, film journalist. Hello. And Tom Selinski of the Best Pick podcast and one of the authors of Best Pick, your book that came out this year, A Journey Through Film History and the Academy Awards. Hello there. How are you doing? Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you very much for having us. Oh, absolutely. Thrilled thrilled that you're here because how, where do you guys stand on on Muppets? Is it one of your top Christmas movies? Oh, for me, it's the, it's the top. It's the one, it's the, the final watch before Christmas. It's the Christmas Eve one. Right. It okay. comes even after It's a Wonderful Life. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, that a, is... that's, you know, a better movie, obviously. Um, but in terms of getting ready for Christmas, yeah, this is my, this is my number one. Amazing. Uh, Tom, how about you? I don't have the same kind of deep uh, affection for it, not because it's a bad movie or a movie I don't like, just because I think I was born at slightly the wrong time. Mm. So I was a bit too grown up to enjoy it when it first came out. And when you invited me to do this, I was struggling to remember if I'd ever actually seen it all the way through. Oh, no. So I watched it this week. And you know what? It's really good. It's really <laughs> it's a, good, right? It's a really, really good film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And one of the things I was surprised by is how much it helps itself to Dickens' prose. Yes, uh, very much. For all the, as you say, felt-based shenanigans that are going on, there's an enormous amount of literature that's been stirred in. Great big quotations from the book. And it's a book I do know very, very well. And so lots of it started coming back to me. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So I'll, I'll be honest as well. We were a Mickey's Christmas Carol household when I was growing up. That was the VHS, because I'm very old, that we had uh, kicking around the house. And and so it took me a a few viewings to get into Muppets as well, because that was not just simply not what I was used to. and now, of course, it's a classic. I, you know, I, I do love the the Muppet stuff, the like the lamp, not the rat, like the lamp, not the rat. <laughs> but but so much of it does come from Dickens. And even things like 
the depiction of the ghost of Christmas past, that weird floating child lady, is closer, I think, to the Dickens description than anything else I've seen. I don't remember the Dickens description. I do. I do. She looks very much like a poached egg that's gone wrong. <laughs> and that ghost, I've always thought. She, she absolutely does. But that's kind of what he describes. He describes her looking young and old at the same time, having slightly yes. disproportionate limbs, having a weird face. Yeah. And they just did that as their puppet. It's Yeah, it's, it's like, it's, I mean, I haven't read the book in years, but it's very faithful, and which in a way that a lot of them aren't. Like the uh, Robert Zemeckis one is also very faithful in that way, but much creepier. Much creep Dead eyes. The lifeless dead eyes of CG as opposed to felt. Well, what do you think it is about this? Is it is it the Dickensness? Is it the Christmas Carolness of this that has helped it, you know, win this place in everyone's hearts? I think it's one of those movies where a bunch of good decisions just like stacked up one after the other. And any one of them could have been made differently, and any one of them would have harmed, in some cases, fatally the final product. So it's not just the casting of Michael Caine that's so important. It's the decision to have a human Scrooge when almost everyone else is a puppet. Uh, and it's then Michael Caine's own insistence on playing it straight, which simultaneously, I think, makes the Muppet comedy stuff funnier, but also means that you can genuinely be moved by his transformation at the end. Such a difficult thing for any actor to pull off, and it's one of Michael Caine's, I think, best performances. And you really have to admire the focus of an actor to give you that much truth when surrounded by what must have been all of this Muppety paraphernalia, you know, having to walk along narrow strips uh, because there are puppeteers under his feet, shoving their hands up through holes in the floorboards, uh, as well as all the usual concerns of lights and cameras and uh, lip syncing and so on. And then there's little tiny decisions as well. We were just talking then about the ghosts and none of the ghosts are played by, played by uh, traditional Muppet characters. Mm which is an odd decision, but what it means is that they don't come to the story with any particular baggage. Mm. You know, so we can we can enjoy Kermit uh, as Bob Cratchit. We can enjoy Miss Piggy, obviously, as, as Mrs. Cratchit. We can enjoy all those other little cameos, but we see the ghosts the way that Scrooge does. Mm. They aren't familiar to us. Uh, and so all these decisions work together. And there's so much detail in it as well. Like, because it is a film that you can always go, you go back and you'll see something new every time. Even in just that song, Scrooge, the one with the immortal line, no cheeses for us, Mises. <laughs> yes. So there are just so many, th as with all Muppet things, there are just so many things happening in the background. I spotted a shop called Micklewhites in the background this time around. Oh, I've oh. never spotted that. That's excellent. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which is obviously Michael Caine's uh, real surname for anyone who doesn't know. Um, it's just, and anything like, the Muppets just have excellent comic timing. Mm. There's still always one of my favourites in it is, one of my favourite moments is is when uh, Jellybean the rabbit, who comes uh, begging to Scrooge's door, gets a snowball thrown at him. The way that the way he falls down, it's just excellent. A very, very good acting rabbit, that, yeah. Buster Keaton learned all of his best exactly. stuff from the Muppets. Exactly, and never, and never credited them. No, never, never credited them. No, no, it, it, that time machine really came in handy for him, didn't it? <laughs> but yeah, I, I think we should, we should talk about Kane a little bit because, you know, at this point in his career, he was probably at a relative low point, I feel like, in his career. He'd slightly aged out of the leading man roles and the sort of, you know, the gorgeous blonde Michael Caine of the 60s and 70s. And, and he was in a little bit of a limbo, I feel like. And this 
weirdly, I mean, this probably felt like another uh, Jaws sequel. You know, I'm doing this from my my house in the Bahamas or whatever it was that that he bought with the money. But at the same time, he 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 really did take it seriously, and he really did knock it out of the park. And I think he reminded everyone that he's he's awfully good. Yeah, and it's and as Tom said, it's what he does so well is to play it dead straight. He's very happy to be the straight man and not not try and not try and do any comedy, and it works so well. It, yeah, it is genuinely one of one of his best performances. Yeah, I think it's the the difference between this and Muppets Most Wanted, which I rewatched recently, where you've got Ricky Gervais keeps trying to pull focus from the Muppets, and it's mm. like, no, that's not with the greatest of respect, Ricky. That's not why we're here. <laughs> you need to rein it in and let them do their thing, you know. And I feel like that's exactly what Kane did here. I also think the Muppet casting is is marvelous. I think, you know, Kermit as Bob Cratchit, it's the role he was born to play for me. It really is. <laughs> well also this is Kermit 2. This is mm, Steve yes. Whitmire's first real outing. I think maybe there'd been a, like a couple of TV specials, but Jim Henson had died only a few years before. He wasn't sure if there were going to be any more Muppet films. They'd picked Steve Whitmire and I think they'd kind of been grooming him to take over even before Jim Henson's death. Uh, but this was his first opportunity to prove that he could be Kermit, uh, mm. and I think it's I think it's seamless. It, it is remarkable because I think we've seen in, in Steve Whitmire's successor that it's not actually as easy as you think. No. He, he, you know, he's good; he's a, a fantastic puppeteer. I'm sure better than any of us would ever be, but he doesn't quite have the voice right. And I think that Steve came much much closer to that Jim Henson mix of of innocence and a, a certain degree of you know, world weariness. He's the one Muppet who kind of tries to keep the gang in line. So there is an element of sort of competence there that, yeah. that not all of them have. But but yeah, a, a fundamental optimism underneath. And I feel like I feel like all of that comes across here in Kermit's Cratchit. He's a remarkably charismatic performer, if that isn't a bizarre thing to say about a piece of felt. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's such an enduring design. You know, no one's ever tried to to rethink or reimagine what Kermit looks like. You look at Mickey Mouse over the years, which seems so iconic, but actually that design has been reinvented and reimagined about half a dozen times, like major changes. But Kermit has always looked the same. They just, again, they just got it right first time. And it's amazing how much he can do, given he is basically a sock puppet compared to all the others. <laughs> yes. that, but genuinely, that really yeah. is basically what he is. There's nothing There's nothing more sophisticated in his face, but the range of emotion they can get from that face. Like, there are a few few things funnier than when Kermit gets frustrated and the face gets screwed up. <laughs> yes. his, screw got, his screwed up face, my God, it's, it's miraculous. I also think casting Gonzo as literal Charles Dickens was, was somewhat inspired. You know, where do you put this weird looking non-specific species of a blue thing while you make him your narrator because he's slightly removed from everything else anyway. You probably would have assumed that he would be one of the ghosts. Like it would probably have made most sense to make Kermit Dickens, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because he fits that more. But yeah, it's it's genius. And you've got Statler and Waldorf as Marley and Marley. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I, admit, I hadn't remembered that uh, until either Statler or Waldorf's face appeared in the door knocker. And then uh, it's Jacob and Robert Marley. And that just sort of kept clanging in my ears for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because Robert Marley sounds like Robert Morley, but also because that makes him Bob Marley, yeah. which is just I, I, I weird. Believe, I believe that was a deliberate little nod. I have my Lego uh, Marley and Marley <laughs> right with, me, with me right now as we record this. They get a great song, so... It was a great song. And it sort of fits, you know, if you're going to have someone who is Scroogier than Scrooge in your Muppet Christmas Carol... 
who else could it be? I mean, because Sam the American Eagle isn't scroogey. He's mm. just stiff. And he works quite well in Victorian England. That's fine. But yes, uh, I, th- I thought Marley and Marley were fantastic. I mean, let's talk about the songs, though, because, you know, Dickens, uh, foolishly in his novella, didn't include any. So that that's one thing that the Muppets really have over him. Yeah, we got Paul Williams back, who uh, wrote Rainbow Connection. That I don't think had done any Muppets stuff in between. Uh, I think he had some fairly serious personal problems. Uh, but he's back here. Uh, and then just before we came on mic, we were talking about this deleted song, which Jeffrey Katzenberg took against. Now, uh, I hadn't done my homework before we sat down to watch this. So we ha- happened to have a couple of friends over. We've been decorating the tree and we sat down and we watched Muppet's Christmas Carol and I have it on uh, DVD. So I just set the DVD in. And I have to say, although once I started doing a bit of Googling afterwards, I remembered I had heard something about this deleted song. I didn't miss it. It didn't seem to me like, oh, the movie doesn't work because that moment isn't there. When I saw the clip, I thought, oh, that's really good. That probably should have been in there. But as we sat and watched it together, nobody said, well, this was a complete waste of everybody's time because that crucial moment of transformation isn't being set to music. Yeah, I don't think, I I mean, f- fine, put it back in, whatever. But I don't, <laughs> think, I, don't, I don't think the film is hurt by the lack of that song. Of all the songs in the film, I think it is the most boring one. <laughs> Like it's not a bad song, but it is quite it is quite dull, and it's sung by humans as well, right? What is amazing to me is that the story goes that Katzenberg wanted it taken out, and promised that it would be put back into the VHS, and then they lost the negative. No, uh, and that's the one we haven't seen it for so long. We, even today, I think it's a uh, if people who care about these things. It's a first generation interpositive that turned up, uh, and it just reminds me of the fragility of this kind of filmmaking you know the for all its problems the the virtue of digital is it's trivially easy unless you're incredibly careless to have multiple backups to have duplicates which are in no way inferior to the quote-unquote original but the camera negative the piece of celluloid that goes through the camera and captures those photons is an absolutely irreplaceable artifact and if you lose it or it gets damaged, there is no way in which you, you you just have to shoot it again. And, you know, if, if it's months or years later, that's impossible. Yeah. Um, look, we could have a very, very long conversation about that and go all Martin Scorsese on, you know, the fact that like, I think 90, I think 95% of, of all silent movies ever made are, are just gone, just gone. Wow. And, uh, and yeah, I, I have to say though about digital, I, I spoke to an archivist once who said that for digital copies to be truly secure, you need at least three copies and you need to be going through and checking them and updating them to the latest software at least once every three years. And essentially no one's doing that you know, consistently and religiously with everything. Anyway, like I say, much, much longer, longer uh, discussion. But yes, I, I, you know, it's nice to have an extra song. That's fine. I'm not sure it, it's necessary, but, you know, more Muppets Christmas Carol is not something that a lot of people are going to object to. Well, no, I disagree. I mean, I think it's nice that the song exists and that it's been preserved. I don't know if I agree that it's nice that it's been inserted back in. Fair. Okay. Um, I think I think the film was pretty much perfect without it. And I don't think it will add anything. A lot of people who are not expecting it, who might have, you know, seen it before, love love the original version, might just be slightly bored for about three minutes <laughs> as, that, as that song drones out. Yeah, there probably aren't very many people queuing up uh, saying what we really want is to hear Michael Caine sing more. 
Can exactly. we have more of that, please? Exactly. If there was a live performance, no one would be shouting, you know, do the love is gone, <laughs> would they? <laughs> it wouldn't be your encore. <laughs> okay, I will admit it wouldn't be your encore. I mean, fair play to Michael Caine, though. He he also, you know, gave it his vocal best shot. I mean, we've we've had a little bit of uh, Dickens-related singing this Christmas, also in Spirited, where you have movie stars giving it their best shot. Giving it a, uh, giving it a good, good old college try. Good old college try. I mean, they're in tune, they're on key. Uh, I'm not sure that they'll be troubling Broadway too much anytime soon, but they they did fine. And it feels like that. He did fine. They probably wrote the songs around his range, like Lin-Manuel and Miranda and The Rock in Moana, and just made sure he could handle it, you know. But it, I, I feel like that's about as much as you can say probably for, for Michael Caine's singing career. And also, that's fair. I mean, no one is coming to a Muppets musical for the vocals, are they? I mean, Kermit, <laughs> God love him. He's not. He's not got a huge range either. But it's he all about love. the feeling. And I think. And I think the thing I will say for it, yes, look, Michael Caine committed. He did. He certainly yeah. sells it. Hello, I'm Martin. I'm Sam. And every week we get together on our podcast, Song by Song, to discuss the music of Tom Waits. Uh, Waits is a writer, musician and performer. Uh, You might know him from his four decades of songs, like uh, What's He Building In There, Downtown Train, Martha, Rain Dogs. Or you might have seen him in films like Dracula, uh, The Fisher King, uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, or if you made it that far, Licorice Pizza. We're joined every week by guests from various backgrounds and disciplines, and together we take a close listen to his work, analysing the topics and tones he uses in his music, and honestly engaging with one of the most interesting voices of his generation. Listen to our latest season or dive into our back catalogue by visiting songbysongpodcast.com or search for Song by Song in your podcatcher of choice. In terms of the feelings, it's a very warm and fuzzy feeling. Well, a fuzzy wig even. You know, we've got uh, the, the joyous Christmas has passed. We have the, the lovely nephew Fred's Christmas and Christmas present. And then that euphoric ending. Interestingly, something I didn't really realise until rereading the, the book this year, which I'd totally forgotten, is that Scrooge doesn't go to Cratchit's house in the book. He sends no. over a turkey, but he doesn't go himself. And so house. many versions go have him going to the house that I had completely failed to register that. Are we saying Dickens miswrote, miswrote his own story? He didn't, <laughs> I think Dickens got it wrong. He got the payoff wrong, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in the book, uh, Scrooge waits for Cratchit to come to work the next morning and then tries to adopt his previously grumpy demeanour. And in this, and as you say, in other versions, that just sort of compressed and streamlined so he can do it all in in the same tour around town. But in this case, he has the tour around town with an entire troop of Muppets (laughs) trailing after him, which which has got to be the best way of doing it. Um, I also love just, I mean, you were talking about the the mind of detail in the background, but just like Muppets hanging out of windows, like the, the complicated nature of this set must have been just off the charts. I have uh, my childhood best friend actually went on set of it because he knew someone who was whose dad worked on it. And uh, I think he said while they were there, they shot roughly 15 seconds of film because <laughs> it's so complicated. How long was he there? A week or something? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the, one, the wonderful thing is that you just completely forget that. Like you just while you're watching in the same way that people always say when they're talking to 
when they're talking to a Muppet, instantly the person whose whose hand is in it has disappeared. Uh, you just don't think of any of the technicalities, like the fact that all these people are probably about eight feet off the floor and there are countless people's arms, you know, controlling most of the characters. It's, yeah, I think we sort of forget the level of technical detail required to make these films. And it looks effortless when you're sitting and watching it. Yeah, exactly. I did an interview recently with some of the puppeteers who worked on Little Shop of Horrors, and there's a big overlap between the the two. Uh, And they described one shot where one of the plant's vines has to reach into a cash register, withdraw Uh a coin, and then close it. And said not only was that uh, well over 70 or 80 takes, but at one point the clapper loader just took pity on them and began the slight numbering from one again, just so they didn't (laughs) feel quite so bad about themselves. (laughs) That's positively Kubrickian. Um, <laughs> if anybody out there hasn't seen Little Shop of Horrors, by the way, it's one of the greats. You you, you should check it out. It's it's absolutely magnificent. But yeah, the, the the difficulty of this and the the way they make it look easy is worth mentioning. I can say I have interviewed Muppets. I interviewed, in fact, um, Steve Whitmire. Well, he was there, and then he stepped aside, and Kermit came in, um, and. Uh, and I absolutely find myself talking to Kermit and not the entirely visible human being man <laughs> sitting next to him. Um, there was there was no quite... Kermit puts his head to one side and nods when you speak, you know, <laughs> like a human <laughs> nods. And so you just find yourself responding to that because that's a human reaction. And it it, it, it is bizarre and seamless and amazing. You cast shade on my puppeteering skills at the beginning of this interview, uh, but uh, I did a, um, a corporate job once uh, where uh, we did some like uh, Muppet-style shows. It was basically an Avenue Q send-up uh, for the benefit of a fancy hotel. Oh, amazing. Uh, and we had some coaching in how to do these like Muppet characters. And one of the things they said to us is, when your puppet isn't speaking or singing, you need to make sure it's always breathing. <laughs> Otherwise, it just becomes a doll. It just hangs there and looks lifeless. But you have to keep a little bit of animation there, even if it is just thinking about breathing in and out. Uh, and it really does make a difference. That is amazing. I mean, yes, it it does. But that's that's incredible. It's also, I think, an exhausting thing to do. So, just spoilers here. I was I was interviewing Kermit on a podcast. So when um, Steve and his colleague came in, they said, "Look, you know, this is a podcast, right? It's just audio. We don't need to do the puppets." And and we were like. No, no, and and they must have seen our faces fall. It was myself and my colleague James Dyer, and and they went and, and we sort of went. Well, can we at least see them? Like, can you sort of you know bring out the puppets and introduce us to Kermit and uh, Pepe the Prawn was there as well, and uh, and then they just took pity on us and did the whole thing as Kermit and Pepe. But I, it is exhausting. It is a huge amount of work. It is a huge amount of effort. And and by the way, of course, there is only one of each of these Muppets. Like, you do not. It's not like when there's a, a press tour going on, multiple Kermits go around the world. Basically, you, you had to have Steve Whitmire or you didn't have Kermit. You had to have Jim Henson back in the day. Is that true of the puppets as well? That's what I was told. Now, I don't know how they deal with, you know, foreign countries. I don't know how they how they handle things in, in non-English speaking languages. There must be some emergency backup Kermits. Are there no stunt ones? You know, when they throw <laughs> as a, a, a window, th- isn't there? A, there must be a. There must be stunt ones, but I know, like it's it's an apparently an enormously expensive thing for Muppets to travel on press tours. Apparently, they are insured for a vast amount of money, and and they make a big deal of there is only one Kermit, and that Kermit has to come to you. So wow. yeah, it's it's not you know Muppets. They're 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 prima donnas. 
I don't know what to tell you. They deserve to be. They're hugely talented. They're huge. Do you have favourite scenes then or favourite songs in the movie? What What are the bits that you can't live without? Um, I mentioned it earlier on, but I think the song Scrooge is my is my favourite favourite one in there just because the level of things going on. It's so funny. From like there's um, singing fruit and vegetables to the the the, the Mises with no cheeses. It's just I think it's just glorious. It's a good call. Yeah, that was the one that was in my head uh, when the the film finished. And any film that gets off to a start like that can't do too much wrong. Uh, yeah, that's just fantastic. And then there's that shot near the end as well. We are talking before about how difficult this is to do. And there's a shot towards the end where there's a, probably about 40 or 50 different Muppets in the frame. And that must be one of those occasions when this call went out. Like, have you ever held a puppet? Have you ever <laughs> seen a puppet? Can you get down to Shepparton uh, and, uh, and take a number and join that queue? Uh, it must have been insane. The, the sheer logistical difficulty of it is is amazing. Having said that, one of my favourite characters in the whole movie, apart from obviously Kermit, who is, you know, my ride or die favourite Muppet, um, is the ghost of Christmas present. I just love that kind of big shambling nature. He's just as described in the book, apart from, again, Charles Dickens left out the part where he's felt, I mean, he, he really wasn't paying attention. Um, but, you know, the sort of, just that that sort of, very sham- shambling from side to side, walk the sheer scale of him, the sheer size, how cuddly he looks. He looks mm-hmm. really cuddly. He just looks super friendly. And um, yeah, I just love all those scenes. They're, they're, they they make me feel very Christmassy. And the rare full body Muppet, isn't he? And the full body, yeah, basically. And is a it? lot nicer than, is it Sweetums? Is Sweet- the other one? Yeah, Sweetums, that's it, yeah. <laughs> who, yeah. who quite frankly, is a little bit scary looking and I'm not sure about. <laughs> so I'd, I'd rather have the ghost of Christmas present in that role. Thank you very much. And it makes me wonder why they didn't do more of this because it was such a success. I don't think it was a huge financial success. I think it did okay, but it was so beloved so rapidly. And I think they did a, I think they did a Muppet Treasure Island and they a did, Muppet yeah. Wizard of Oz. But, but were they both for TV? I think Treasure Island was in cinemas. Treasure and Island t- was in cinemas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, they definitely tried to recreate it. It's just the, they didn't. They didn't work as well. Muppet Treasure Island isn't anywhere near as much fun. And uh, the God, the Wizard of Oz ones, I only va- vaguely remember. It had Quentin Tarantino in it, didn't it? Oh yeah, God. which was bizarre. Yeah. But seeing the scale differences with that huge puppet makes me think that Muppet in Wonderland must surely have been discussed at some point. Wouldn't that work brilliantly? <gasps> oh, that would be amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think that Muppet Treasure Island, for, for me, the big note I had, because again, I rewatched that recently, the big note I have is there are too many humans. All the pirates are humans. And I feel like we need more Muppet pirates. I think that would have been better. Um, there have been a lot of calls, a weird number of calls online, uh, on, on Twitter and so on in recent years for a Muppet Pride and Prejudice. <clears throat> so a Darcy and, and and Brett Goldstein, who's a massive Muppets fan, a huge fan of this film, has been suggested as a as a possible Mr. Darcy. But basically, Darcy would be the only human character, and everyone else would be Muppets. I think they're on something. I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, especially with it being Brett Goldstein. Yeah, I think that would work well. Yeah. So you know, fingers crossed that somebody gets back on the Muppet classic literary adaptation mm. bandwagon. Have you got any other favourites that you think they should do? War and Peace is still out there. Crime and Punishment. <laughs> just, if they do Pride and Prejudice, who should play Elizabeth Bennet? Because I know there's an obvious answer that it should be Miss Piggy, mm. but I don't think she fits. No, she'd be a much better. Um, uh, what's uh, Mrs. Bennet? I think she'd be great. <laughs> Mrs. Mm. She could be Mrs. Although I don't know if she'd be ready to play the mother of a grown woman. Uh, I apologise. Obviously, apologize, I mean she's, she's are, a very young woman. Yes, but I, I think she would be a good. Uh, what is it, Caroline 
Bingley, Caroline Bingley, Mr. Oh, Bingley's horrible, horrible sister, yes, yes. Um, would, would be glamorous enough for Miss Piggy. Yes. I, I don't mean to suggest that she's horrible, of course. Um, but that that is a small supporting role. She could also be Jane, the more glamorous older sister of Lizzie Bennet, and that would would rather fit. The tricky thing for Muppets is they do actually have quite a quite a small selection of female central Muppets, don't they? Mm, yeah, true. Miss Piggy, Janice. Already, I'm starting to run out. Yeah, the chicken, <laughs> the, the, the twin, uh, the, the chicken. <laughs> is it, aren't there twins? Was it Scooter and Skeeter? Or am I yes. thinking of Muppet I think Babies? She was, I think she was invented for Muppet Babies. Yeah, okay. I don't think she okay. exists as an actual puppet. I mean, I want to bring Muppet Babies back. The original 2D animation, not this 3D computer nonsense. Um, so I, I'm, I feel like we should bring Skeeter back for that. Okay, so I think we're we're running out of time a little bit. But you know, in short, this will not surprise anyone. Do we recommend the Muppet Christmas Carol? Wholeheartedly, yes. Yeah, 100%. Young or old, uh, only if you have a violent aversion to Muppets, uh, I think <laughs> will this uh, film fail to delight you. Yes, a violent, a violent aversion to Muppets or or joy, yeah. or possibly Michael Caine would be the only reason not to watch this. But, uh, but otherwise, get it on your Christmas lists, as it were. And yes, even if you're a diehard, diehard fan, even if you're into It's a Wonderful Life, this stands right alongside them, I think, as one of the all-time greats. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Ollie, I know you told everybody recently where to find you in another episode, but in case they haven't heard that one yet, you're at Ollie Richards. I am Ollie Ollie Richards on uh, Instagram or Ollie underscore Richards on on Twitter, but honestly, don't bother. (laughs) (laughs) But you post pictures of your dog. I do post pictures of my dog. There's been a lot of snow recently, so that's festive. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And Tom, um, tell people about Best Pick and the book especially, which is great, by the way. Uh, Thank you very much. And thank you for your contribution. Uh, Yes, uh, about five years ago now, with two colleagues, I embarked on a journey to watch every Academy Award Best Picture winner in an order determined by putting them out of a hat at random. And we turned the entire journey into first a podcast and then a book. And the podcast has carried on since then with us in the same style, looking at different films as the the fancy takes us. And my eye is now drawn, by the way, to the uh, sight and sound uh, Mm. critics poll with all sorts of interesting goodies there. I don't know if we're going to be doing quite the same sort of rigorous treatment uh, of those 100 films. Uh, But uh, there's a lot of interesting things that I've never seen, including the film that's the new number one. Yeah, Jean Delman. Um, so I yeah, well, have you seen this? I have once when I was trying to get into my you know art house cinema phase. It's it I, it wouldn't be my personal number one of all time. I voted for the apartment just for the record, but you know it's it's great. It's up there. So hey, all right. Well, if people haven't listened to best picks or or haven't picked up the book, it does make a lovely Christmas present. Thank you, Ollie. Thank you, Tom. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Well, that's it for this episode of Bah Humbug. Please join us next time for more Christmas movies madness. In the meantime, I've been your host, Helen O'Hara. This podcast is edited by Ben Williams and produced by Kobe Omanaka for Stripped Media. And if you've enjoyed the pod, please do rate us with five shiny Christmas stars wherever you listen to your podcasts. But whatever you do, happy holidays! just heard a stripped media production.